All right, let's uh, begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening, as we always should and hopefully always do. Particularly when we are studying something that is, well, you might say a little difficult or a little controversial at times. Help us then to understand not only what it meant to the apostles and the disciples at Christ's time, or at your time, but what it means to us today and how can we apply it, because that's the whole purpose of why we're studying this. So we ask your blessing on our efforts tonight and as we go forward in studying um, this interesting gospel of Luke. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Tonight, because we are covering a lot of detail, uh, I'm going to use the book and we'll go through kind of the book as it is, rather than regrouping them as I've done for the past two weeks. I think uh, it will be uh, just as beneficial and perhaps a little easier sometimes to understand. But again, as we did last week, we've got to sort of set the scene. And you should do that whenever you start to read any of the, uh, any of the uh, Bible passages, but particularly the Gospels. Try to understand what the position, what the scene is, where Christ is, where the disciples are, and at what level. You see, in the three years or approximately three year period that Christ taught his ministry, he brought the apostles and the disciples virtually up from no understanding to, you know, a considerable understanding by the time of his death and resurrection. And then, of course, it went on um, through the efforts of Paul and a number of other people in the early church fathers for more development of the theology. But you still have to really understand where where Christ is in this ministry. And then putting yourself into the scenes as we go along. And that is how you really should understand and, and read and study Scripture. Just reading it, you know, opening the book cold and reading it, sure, if you're a genius, you might be able to, to pick up the proper meaning. But I dare say that it unusual and very difficult to get the full meaning in that way. So you have to sort of back up, bring forward all of the previous learning that you had, and then understand the scene. So putting yourself into the scene helps a great deal, and we'll try to do some of that as we go along. Right now, we know from the past couple of weeks that Christ is headed towards his final mission or final part of his mission, really, which is his death and resurrection on the cross. We won't get to that until two weeks from tonight. Next week, we will be going through another series of a lot of details. But what you should be seeing is, and particularly next week, how Christ is really trying to educate and get across to the apostles as much of the detail as he would like to. 
And that is why next week it is such a uh, uh, packed house, you might say. And that's why I set up this form uh, with the attachment and some of the Some of the scriptures marked with a little check mark over on the left margin there that we'll be paying a little more attention to uh, than the others. It's not that the others are not important, but they're a little easier to understand without getting into the detail. But if you look at these are four chapters for next week, and they are packed with a lot of small vignettes uh, of teaching. And as you go through these between now and next week, try to understand and see the sense of urgency that Christ is putting into some of these details. Because it is this sense of urgency that is coming from his knowledge of what is coming up once they get to Jerusalem. And Hopefully, it'll help you then, once we get there two weeks from tonight, uh, to the passion and death of Christ, you'll see what or how this all comes together. Okay, now, the scene tonight primarily centers around or focuses on teaching the disciples through parables. Now, remember, who are the disciples? We are all the disciples. All the followers of Christ are disciples. We are not the apostles. The apostles uh, today are the bishops. Not even the priests, but the bishops who are the single hierarchy of the church just as it was at the time of Christ or shortly thereafter. With the Pope taking the place of Peter and all of the bishops taking the place of the remaining uh, 11 apostles. The hierarchy is still the same, even though we hear them talking about monsignors and cardinals and all of that. Those are just titles. All right, They are still bishops. And that is important to understand. The Catholic Church is still governed by the bishops, with the head bishop being the Pope. Um, like I said, uh, the cardinals are no different. They have no other spiritual powers or church powers. They just have a little more responsibility and uh, a little bit more um, awareness of what's going on. A monsignor is no longer used. Uh, those who were um, honored by the title, and that's all it was, was an honorary title, uh, still may use that title of monsignor, but to my knowledge, there aren't any new ones uh, being um, made monsignors. Okay. Let's begin at chapter 14. Chapter 14, uh, particularly the first 24 verses. The first 24 verses all center around banquets. Jesus is invited by the Pharisees, the leading Pharisees, to a banquet. 
Now you have to understand how a banquet is set up in this particular culture. It is generally done in an open courtyard. And the street people can come by. They are not excluded. They are not, of course, part of the banquet, but they are not excluded entirely. For example, you've all heard the story many times of the sinful woman that comes in and anoints Jesus' feet and wipes him with her hair. Well, obviously, if the Pharisees knew that she was a sinful woman, she wouldn't have been an invited guest. So how would she get in there? And you have to kind of understand that. It's because of the way this is arranged. It's generally, like I said, in an open courtyard where street people can pass by. As a rule, most of them won't enter and mingle with the guests. That would uh, probably be against the etiquette of the time, and there'd probably be as we would call them, bouncers there to, to make sure they didn't come in. But nevertheless, all right. So we have a man here that is uh, suffering from dropsy or edema, as we would call it today. Now, he was probably not an invited guest because if you remember, anybody with a serious illness was considered a, a sinner and kind of excluded from society because of that. So this is another one of these people that probably was not an invited guest, but he was at least visible to the attendees at this banquet. All right? And Jesus, out of compassion, sees the problem of this person and uses the event to not only heal the man, but then talk about the curing of somebody on the Sabbath. Uh, we've had one of those similar stories before. And in all the Gospels, we have various stories of Jesus trying to explain that the Pharisees and the temple rulers are carrying this law of Moses about not working or doing anything on the Sabbath way too far. It just got way out of hand. And he gives the example to these people, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? And of course, they're out of politeness now. Remember, they're at this fancy banquet. Um, and so they don't really say anything. But then he turns around and he says, well, let me give you another example. If you've had a son or a a farm animal, an ox or a horse or whatever, fall into a well on the Sabbath. Wouldn't you drop everything and pull him out? So there are limits to what the Sabbath is all about. In John's Gospel, John ends up in chapter 6, he ends up with Christ saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was something that was set apart for a man to rest his body and in the process of resting, give honor and glory to God. But it wasn't that man was to be sacrificed on the Sabbath through the 
laws of not being able to do anything but sit there and vegetate for the whole day. So we got to, and today we have kind of the the same thing. We've got to look at how does that apply to us today. Well, there are a lot of people today that have to work. You know, policemen, firemen, nurses, doctors, etc. My, my daughter is a nurse, and, and every third weekend or fourth weekend, I forget what it is, uh, she is on duty, and she has to work. Um, so, what do they do? You know, they can't, couldn't go by the Mosaic Law. They'd lose their job real quick. You know, if they said, "Sorry, I can't." You know, it's against my law, my rules, and so forth. Anyways, uh, so they do something else, or they will. Oh, excuse me, here comes the Pope. <laughs> oh, I, my, my apologies for even bringing it up, sir. You, you are just welcome at any time. Anyways, I think you got the point. I don't want to go and belabor this a little too much. The thing is, we have to be conscious of, first of all, resting on the Sabbath. Secondly, to give honor and glory to God for the ability to do so. But we can't then go out and start digging ditches, you know, and painting the house and so forth. I think those are extremes. I think we have to give good example. Uh, for the fact that we are a Christian and um, follow it to, you know, an acceptable degree. But let's go on. Jesus is still at this banquet and begins to sort of teach the Pharisees as well as his disciples. Remember, many of his disciples and some of the apostles went along with him to these various banquets. He wasn't always singled out and went alone. Um, so he says to him, <clears throat> to those who have been invited, notice how they were choosing, when they first come in, they were choosing the place of honor. And then occasionally one of them would be asked to uh, move over or take a lower position so that somebody of greater importance uh, would come in. So Jesus is trying to point out that humility is something that is far more important to God than honor and glory and all the prestige that a person might deserve or receive here on earth. So he goes into a rather extensive uh, teaching, you might say, on humility. And that is something that we all should really take into consideration. Humility is not belittling yourself. I've heard people say, <laughs> won't say who, but anyways, after, uh, this is a common one from somebody in my family, after she cooks a, a beautiful meal and everybody enjoys it and starts complimenting her how nice it is, and so forth, and then she'll say, oh, it wasn't that good, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't, so. 
And she knows darn well it was, you know. She spent all day working on it. Oh, no, it's not that good. You know, you should really. Uh, that's not humility, you know. That's kind of putting yourself down. Uh, humility is really recognizing who you are and your relationship to God and the fact that all of the good things that you have came from God in some way or other, right? Either you have, you know, great intelligence or you've inherited uh, qualities or attributes or talents or you've been taught by your mother who pounded them into your head or whatever. Anyways, one way or the other, what you have to offer, what you have to be proud of, came to you from God, at least through somebody else. And so we should all recognize that we are dependent upon God uh, for most of the good things that we have. Okay. The idea of the banquet, here and in the parable that we're coming up to, is often used throughout the Bible, not only here, but throughout the Bible, as a metaphor for the heavenly banquet, or heaven itself. Sometimes it's a wedding banquet, sometimes it's just not mentioned as to what the purpose is. But a banquet in this culture was always something very special, and there was generally guests of honor, uh, dignitaries, and, you know, a, a very special meal. It's interesting that um, in this opening uh, story here where uh, Jesus heals the man with the dropsy. Uh, that is a large bear, uh, banquet on the Sabbath. Now, if you don't think that there's a lot of work in producing a large banquet on the Sabbath or a Sunday, um, somebody's mistaken here, okay? Or has totally overlooked that part of it. So we got to kind of keep that in mind. The other thing about the Sabbath is Christ, or rather God, I should say, his creation still goes on, whether it's the Sabbath or any other day. People die, people are born, things do happen, volcanoes erupt, you know, you have uh, storms and all kinds of weather conditions. Those are all part of God's ongoing creation. Creation did not end with Adam and Eve. Creation continues. It's just that it's so common uh, as part of an everyday occurrence that we don't always recognize it as creation. But God's creation continues. It didn't stop uh, after the sixth day of creation. There's an interesting comment on that regard on page 100. If you'll turn to that, please. Right in the very middle of the page, in the commentary section, there's a sentence that says, The banquet, therefore, becomes a metaphor for victory in the battle on behalf of the kingdom of God. In other words, it's the disciples' effort in working his way into the kingdom of God. 
those refusing to come to the dinner demonstrate that they recognize this point. They simply do not hold the kingdom in as high regard as their daily affairs, as noble as those affairs may be. And this is in the section, and I hope, I'm sure you all read this, so I won't even question that. Uh, but this is in the section, you know, that says, uh, the special guests that were invited go away one by one with all these various excuses. Uh, one just got a, a team of oxygen and wanted to try them. One just got married and wanted to try them. And, well, you know, one had to go to their business and so forth and so on. <laughs> you know, uh, if you gave a, a, a great Thanksgiving dinner and they started peeling off one by one just before you um, were putting things on the table, uh, you'd be a little upset, would you not? What? the writer here is referring to or using this as an example are those people who don't take the whole concept of life after death serious or don't take the concept of the kingdom of God serious and everything else becomes more important and they will tell you that I have no interest, I have no understanding, no knowledge, and I don't care about it. And unfortunately, those people will be left out. Uh, and that is what it's talking about. Further, if we go down to the end of that same paragraph on page 100, the invitation, and I'm adding here, the invitation by God is a purely gracious act. The lesson of the parable places Jesus' mission in a microcosm. The self-satisfied person, the self-sufficient person, the self-righteous person are welcome into the kingdom, but their self-inflated importance or lack of understanding will block their will to enter. Those knowing their spiritual destitution will enter. I'm sorry. Knowing, those knowing their spiritual destitution will enter the kingdom willingly and the Gentiles who have no legal claim or right to come and dine will also be invited uh, to fill the banquet hall. And this, of course, is after those who were invited started to peel off and uh, excuse themselves, then the, the host asks the waiters to go out and bring virtually anybody in, okay? And then the last to be brought in are the people out in the highways and the byways, you know, all of the, the homeless, etc. And those are equated to the pagan Gentiles who actually picked up um, Christ's offer uh, after the Jews refused, and particularly later in Paul's efforts after he had spent most of his early days as a Christian in trying to convert the Jews that they refused to accept him. So keep in mind, so whenever you hear a story about a banquet, it is generally a metaphor for the heavenly rewards that we are offered through our 
relationship with Christ. And if there is no relationship with Christ, we are in danger then of not being invited into heaven. Let's uh, go on to page 102, the simile of salt. We have used this before in mentioning light. We are the salt of the earth. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor or taste, with what can it be restored? And the answer is nothing. It is fit neither for the soil, because it contaminates soil, nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. If it is mixed with other kinds of chemicals, it can, yes, because it is a chemical. Yeah. Whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. Now, if you go down to the uh, third line of that first paragraph in the commentary, it says the disciples who shrug off the cross or ignore the cross of Christ, its meaning and its application to us today, um, cease then being disciples. And I think uh, we can visualize a few politicians who might fit that category rather well. They'll say one thing, and then they'll say, oh, but I'm a Catholic. But they'll do something that's entirely opposed to Catholic belief. So what they're doing is they're really pretending to be one thing, and they're saying and promoting something else. Well, that tells you right here, those who shrug off the cross or the truth cease being disciples of Christ. Now we have three parables. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. All of these really have an emphasis on Christ going after that which is lost. Christ is generally the main figure in each of the parables. And the whole idea here is the unlimited ways that Christ will try to reach those who are lost. So even though a person may not have the knowledge or understanding of what heaven is all about, or maybe he or she at this point in their life doesn't care, Christ will still go after them in one form or another. Not forcing, but making allowances, opening every door, opening every possibility to allow that person to have a second chance and re, uh, reinvigorate them and their faith. But unfortunately, he will not force. And so it is a concern for all of us. In the story of the lost coin, what woman having ten coins and losing one would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it. And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I lost. Well, when I was a kid, I used to think, Would you spend all your day, you know, sweeping to look for a dime? 
And my mother came along one day, and you know, I guess I posed this question to her during the Depression, mind you. And she said, you bet I would, you know, because every little penny counted in those days. So we don't look at the value here necessarily or equate it to any particular amount. It's the idea, the concept. We represent, many times, the loss. The woman in this case is a metaphor for Christ himself. And Christ will do virtually anything to have a lost person come back into the fold. And that's, of course, the whole idea of the lost sheep. And I, I'm probably mixing this up with, where is the lost sheep? Oh, before. All right, I took them out of order. All right. Well, it's the same thing. There, you've got a shepherd who is, again, a metaphor for she, uh, for Christ himself, leaving the 99. Well, this is an exaggeration because would a shepherd really leave the most of his flock and go off trying to find one that got lost? Well, yes. In most cases, yes. I don't know if any of you have ever read Philip Keller's book, uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, a very popular book years ago. Philip Keller was a professional herdsman, and in this case, thousands of sheep, not just a few, you know, as it would be represented here, like 99, but a professional uh, sheep herder, okay? And this whole book is all about raising sheep. But what he does on a paragraph by paragraph or um, chapter by chapter basis, he goes and he takes Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you're all familiar with that. And he equates it to real sheep herding. And it really is a way of, of making the psalm much more meaningful to today's people. Okay. So if you have an opportunity, um, read Psalm 23, and if you have the opportunity, read Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Okay. Here we have the passage of the shepherd leaving the 99 and going off. Again, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but what it is is Christ trying to explain how much effort he or God would go through to try to rescue any person who is lost or who is in danger of being lost. All right, let's go over to the parable of the prodigal son. It's just called the lost son here. This is one of the most misunderstood uh, stories in the Bible. You're all familiar with the story of the son who demanded his half of the inheritance, which if you think about it in this culture is uh, a little strange because remember I've said many times that in this Jewish culture 
the older son, the firstborn son, inherits everything. The others, whether it's one or a dozen, uh, who follow the firstborn are entitled to nothing until the firstborn dies and then in proper succession of age it falls to the next one. Okay, um, So how this younger son can demand half of the inheritance uh, is sort of, uh, out of outside of, of the culture. But be that as it may, let's go on because it really is not important to the story in itself. We're all familiar with the fact that the younger son took uh, his half of the fortune of his father and went off and uh, squandered it in uh, Las Vegas and Atlantic City and, you know, those kind of places. Um, and uh, finally ends up broke. And, you know, that's what the roulette wheel will do for you. It's, you end up broke. So here he is without a job. Then a famine comes along, and he's really destitute. So he puts himself out for hire at a farm and says even the pigs have, you know, the pigs, you know, no, no for Jewish people, um, have uh, more to eat than he does. So he finally comes to his senses and goes says he'll go home because the servants there have more than he has. All right, that's all well and good. We're all familiar with that, right? But the story is sort of misnamed. I mean, down through the history, it's always been called the prodigal story of the prodigal son. Yet the focus should really be on the father. And we should take a good look at the other son. Because the other son seemed to be the good and holy guy who stayed back and did what the father wanted. But if you read the words, particularly in Matthew's Gospel, because it's in, it is in Matthew's Gospel, um, he resented every minute of it. Really hated it. Hated his father. Because his father never paid any great attention to him, etc., etc. At least that's the way he looked at it. And he just resented the whole thing. And then when the younger son comes back and the father kills the fatted calf and they have a great celebration, that only makes the resentment more. So the father, who is always looking out for the son, this is Christ, always looking out for the lost one, sees him coming down the road begins to celebrate even before he gets there. And then, of course, there's the great reunion. And the younger son begs forgiveness and says he'd like to be a servant and so forth. And the father says, never mind the servant. Come in, you're my son, etc., etc. A reunion, forgiveness, a great deal of love. But then the other son, of course, sees all of this and becomes more resentful. And so the father tries to coax him too. So what we're saying here is that we can be either son and either one was wrong in different ways, but they were wrong. And what Christ is trying to say through this parable with the father 
is that forgiveness is always available to those who come to their senses and ask for forgiveness. If the older son had come and asked for permission to have a banquet with his friends or a party or whatever, no doubt the gracious and loving father would have given it to him. But because he didn't ask, you know, then he becomes resentful because it isn't there for him. The whole idea is the father's love for both sons and his willingness to overlook their transgressions. The thing is, we have to look at the older son who appeared to be, in most cases, faithful and obedient and all of that, and perhaps he was, but he resented it. We can be the same way. We can follow the rules and the regulations that God laid down, the Ten Commandments and all the church rules and regulations, but that doesn't mean we like them, and that doesn't mean we are really taking them to heart or that we're following them for the wrong reason. And remember, whenever you do something right, but for the wrong reason, it is still wrong. Did you think of that? Doing something right for the wrong reason is still wrong. And that's the way this older son led his whole life, apparently. Hopefully, after this confrontation with the father and explaining, etc., it got resolved. We don't know. We will know when we get to heaven. Okay. Any questions so far? Yes, Elena? Oh, you bet. Yes, that's a good point. Yes. In fact, that's when grace is probably more available. But it's not something that is forced on a person. Now, do you all understand the point of, that Eleanor is making? The grace of God. Take this example of the father. Supposing the father realizing at some earlier point that the older son was brooding and, and you know, resentful. He was doing what he was told to do. But you could tell he didn't like it. Right. Supposing the father, through maybe a servant or a supervisor of some kind, uh, got this son to look at things a little differently, or got the son to come in and and kind of bring these things up. What's what's bothering you? You know, what's eating you? We can tell you're not happy here. So what's what's the problem? That would be an example of grace, where this uh, third person is not forcing his attention on, on the younger, older son, but he's trying to help him. Grace is something that people know so little about, and yet it is so important. It is the 
work of the Holy Spirit to try to bring somebody back into the fold or try to prevent someone from going off the deep end or from uh, falling into temptation of some kind. It is the grace that is showered on all of us for our need and for our help to remain faithful to God in whatever the occasion might be. Is that clear? Yeah. And so, uh, as Eleanor pointed out, yes, something could have been done to help the son not be so resentful. And perhaps even the, the father through, as I said, this confrontation here where it all came out in the open uh, would look a little differently and give a little more attention to the older son. That would be um, an example of God's grace being given to all of us. In chapter 16, on page 108, there's a, another parable that is kind of misunderstood. Then he said to his disciples, again, most of these teachings are to give the, the disciples as much of Christ's understanding of what his mission and so forth is. Uh, as possible. A rich man had a steward who was reported to him for squandering his property. He summoned him and said, what is this I hear about you? Prepare a full account of your stewardship because you can no longer be my steward. So the steward said to himself, gee, what shall I do? Now that my master is taking the position of steward away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I know what I'll do. I'll go to Washington and get part of the stimulus. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> when I am removed from the stewardship, that they may welcome me into their homes, he called his master's debtor one by one, and first he said, How much do you owe my master? And he replied, A hundred measures of olive oil. He said to him, Here is your promissory note. Sit down quickly and write one for fifty. And then to another he said, And how much do you owe? And he replied, One hundred cores of wheat. And he said, Here is your promissory note. Write one uh, for eighty. And the master commended the dishonored dishonest steward for acting prudently. Now, that sounds almost like God is approving is being dishonest. So you have to know and understand the background. A steward in this time and culture was told that he had to, and, and this would be the same for tax collectors, all right? They were charged with the value of certain goods or services. And if they could collect more than that, then whatever more they collected was their own. So if this 
promissory note was for a hundred cores of wheat. The difference between the hundred and the eighty or whatever it is here, I lost track, uh, was to go to the steward. And so what he was doing was cutting his own income, not what the master was to get. So he's not cheating the master. He's reducing his own income in order to make friends with people so that he could call on them for help at a later date. All right. So the prudence that he is given credit for is at least cutting his own throat, you might say, uh, to save his skin later. That's the prudence. In other words, he is working ahead and thinking ahead for when he has uh, has the right to call on, on some of these people. All of this is really, and even up until the next few chapters, we're talking about various forms of, of money, wealth, position, and social status, all of which is good in its right place, its rightful place. But unfortunately, and as, as these parables discuss, so many people put them ahead of God rather than in their proper place. God has nothing wrong, says, has nothing against wealth in its proper place. Honest wealth. Unfortunately, Bernie Madoff has missed the cut. Uh, but honest wealth, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, you hear the old say the wages of sin is death and all of that. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It is how you cling to it, what it means to you versus your relationship with God. You have a number of wealthy people. And the one that first comes to mind is Catherine Drexel. You're all probably familiar that Drexel University in Pennsylvania is now establishing a branch here, and they are going to be building a very large four-year uh, complex right here in Roseville, well, near Roseville. Uh, Catherine Drexel was from a very wealthy family. She entered a convent as a young lady and established an order of nuns and so forth, and now she has recently, in the last couple of years, been canonized as St. Catherine Drexel. There is a family who has used a great deal of their wealth uh, to further the causes of the Catholic Church. You have a number of people that do that. And, of course, it is not they weren't made saints because they were wealthy and helped the Catholic Church. Uh, they were saints before that. Okay? Whether they were recognized in, by the Church or not, nevertheless, they were saints. The whole idea of how a person becomes a saint or is recognized and declared a saint is rather interesting. There is a book by Father Richard McBrien, um, who is currently a professor at Notre Dame University, has written a 
wonderful book on the lives of the saints. It's much more up-to-date than Butler's book on the saints, which has been used for God knows how long. Uh, and it has a very long chapter in it on the process of canonization. But even though we're slightly off the subject, let me say the church does not make a saint. The church can only declare who is in heaven through a long process. And everybody in heaven is a saint by definition. Saints are those who are in heaven because of their holiness and closeness to God. All right? So everybody in heaven is a saint. However, you can't call your Aunt Maggie Saint Maggie, right? Because we don't know for sure that Maggie is in heaven. But through the process of canonization, the church will declare that a given person is in heaven and therefore a saint. Okay. So it's kind of the reverse of what most people think. Yes, sir. Keep thinking about this particular parable and then going back to the parable of the two servants whose master went off on a trip. And he was the master being the And he was extremely harsh on the third servant who buried the money and just returned the whole. Mm-hmm. Whereas here with this guy, he doesn't seem to be harsh at all. Well, I think the the point is are a little different. Uh, how would you say that they differ? Well, they were both dismissed. But with this guy, he with, with the with the first, the first servant, he chewed him out. Mm-hmm. He was worthless. That's right. Chastised him and kicked him out. Mm-hmm. That's not the way it was. In this one, he said, "Oh, you know, you you pretty smart guy. You took care of yourself, and he's lost. Both of them lost their job." Yes. Seem to be harsh on Well, the the facts are different, though. In this dishonest story, at least the master got what was due to him. In your example of the three um, servants or whatever, the last one took what the master gave him and then returned it without earning anything. In other words, the point there is we are all represented by those three servants, one or the other, and that we are all given talents and abilities to be used for the benefit of others, ourselves and others. But if we keep all of our talents solely for ourselves or do nothing with them, then we are wasting what God has given us. And so there is a waste there and that is what he is being chastised for. And the first Yes, yes. And the first in the first one he has money that he is giving out to three different servants. And the first doubles his, uh, he got ten talents or whatever, and 
he doubles his and he was rewarded for doubling his money, the master's money. The second one got a smaller amount and he doubled his. And he's rewarded for doubling his and giving it to the master. The third one takes the money and, as this gentleman says, buries it and does nothing with it. So it's not that the master lost anything, but at the same time, he didn't gain anything either. And the individual lost out because he didn't use his resources or the proper resources to gain something. And in this last one here, at least the master in this case didn't lose out on anything. Uh, he got what was deserved because the guy used his head and cut his own income to save his skin for later on. No, it was very common. It was common in use, commonly used uh, in the culture, not only for teaching of this kind, but really a lot of communicating was done through parables. It, you see, they didn't have newspapers. They didn't have email and text messaging and so forth. So teaching, as well as general communication, was often put into story form. And a parable is a story with one purpose or one point for the hearer to ponder and then come to a conclusion. It is not a story where the point is standing out there like a sore thumb. It is hidden within the context and it is expected that the hearer will pay some attention to the whole context of the story to get the point that is intended. Yes, yes. Another point that is made, uh, not so much here in this in Luke, but particularly in Matthew's Gospel, is that all of the educated people and most, many of the even non-educated people knew the Bible scriptures, the Old Testament Bible scriptures, uh, from memory. There weren't a lot of books around, remember. And so they still had the same drive to learn, to read and write and so forth. And so scripture was one of the most common things available, and it was all transmitted verbally, or mostly transmitted verbally, because there were very few copies around. So it was very common for people to understand scripture. And quite often, people would use portions of scripture in everyday conversation. And they wouldn't have to go through the whole uh, scripture reading. They could just use portions of it. And then people would understand where that came from and get the point that the reader or writer or, or speaker was trying to make. Let me give you an example. In Matthew's Gospel, I don't think it's in this one, but in Matthew's Gospel, um, John the Baptist sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. 
thinking and hoping that they will follow Jesus because John is pointing out there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a couple of his disciples go off and to see who Jesus is. And Jesus turns around and sees them following him. And they're, you know, caught a little embarrassed. And Jesus said, what are you looking for? And the point, of course, is what are you looking for in the way of eternal life? But those words don't come out. It's just what are you looking for? And they're embarrassed, and, you know, like Peter with putting his foot in his mouth, he'll say, or they said, uh, where are you staying? And Jesus says, the foxes have dens, and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, what the heck does that mean in regards to uh, where do you stay, or where do you live? But, you see, if you go to Psalm 84, what that psalm is all about is the beauty and the glory of the temple. And what Jesus is really saying is, what you are looking for, you will find in the temple. Meaning that the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God remained, where God rested. And, you see, the connection... Um, because Jesus knew what these two were looking for, but they were caught sort of off guard. You know, where do you stay? Well, that's kind of an odd statement. Yes? Another example would be on the cross when Jesus said, My God, my God, why yes. have you forsaken me? Yes. And that sounds like a prayer or a despair situation. Amen. Yes. What Duff just said is that you're all familiar with, and we'll get to this when we get up to uh, chapter 21, uh, is when Christ is on the cross, one of the seven last words that you often hear preached on Good Friday is when Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everybody understands that, but some of them say, well, you know, he's calling for Elijah. Other ones, he's, he's calling for mercy from the Father or whatever. Of course, they didn't understand uh, the relationship there yet. Uh, but what, as Duff pointed out, what, what Christ is really doing is calling the, the attention of those who are crucifying him to Psalm 22 that begins with those words. And Psalm 22 is a lament in the first part. And it describes the whole scene of the crucifixion, right down to the casting of lots for his garment and the fact that his bones were not broken like the two thieves on either side. But if you read the second part of Psalm 22, it's a victory song. And it talks about the victory that is ultimately um, consummated in the resurrection. So you have sort of the two sides. And, you know, Mary and the apostles and those who were truly uh, understanding Scripture, and particularly the temple rulers, the Pharisees, when they hear Christ call out, my God, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? And they remember that this is Psalm 22, what Christ is then saying, without having to say it, is that, look guys, you're fulfilling the prophecy within that psalm. By crucifying the Son of Man, you have now fulfilled that prophecy and you will be the ones charged with it. Now, then they were totally misinformed. Totally misinformed and they didn't read the second part. See, they take it, they take it on face value without going back to where it came from. Yeah. But it was a common thing to use scripture in everyday language. Of course, the cross scene was not everyday language, but nevertheless, it, it served the same purpose. If we, say, if we look at the sayings against the Pharisees, who loved money and heard all these things and sneered at Jesus, and he said to them, you justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is of human esteem is an abomination in the sight of God. This, of course, is the whole idea of um, comparing the widow with the... Uh, oh, I'm, I'm getting a few of these mixed up. The one I would really like to get into is more far more important. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. On page 110. You've all heard of this many times, but let me inject a few words here and there for hopefully a better understanding. There was a rich man dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each day. And at the same time, outside his door was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Uh, let me stop here for a moment. Those same words were used by the Syrophoenician woman, when Syrophoenician meaning a pagan woman, who asked Jesus to cure her daughter. And Jesus said, well, you know, I've just come for the lost sheep of Israel, and we don't throw scraps to the dogs. You're all familiar with that, and you often wonder, gee, would Jesus really say something like that? That was a common phrase. The dogs were a reference to the pagans, or the Gentiles, all right? But the woman is very persistent in this case, and she says, even the dogs lick the scraps that are thrown to them from the table. Remember, in this culture, and for centuries even beyond that, people did not have fancy little napkins at each place setting here to wipe their fingers. Remember, there weren't any forks, knives, and spoons in those days. There were knives, but they were, you know, more like daggers. Um, people ate with their hands. That was the culture. Hope they didn't eat soup that way. But anyways. And they would use bread and the crust of bread to wipe their fingers and they would throw it under the table for the dogs. That was a common acceptable habit. We'd all have a fit of 
just did that today, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Anyway, so that's where this phrase comes from, okay? It says, um, Lazarus covered with sores who would gladly have eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. When the poor man died, he was carried away by angels to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And from the netherworld, where he was in torment. See, the bosom of Abraham is sort of a euphemistic way, a metaphor for heaven. And the netherworld was their word for what we would call hell. Where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at Abraham's side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the finger, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. See, he's sort of all still demanding. He hasn't given up the position of the rich man, even though he's in hell. So he's asking Lazarus to, to dip the finger in water and cool his tongue, for I am suffering torment in these flames. Abraham replies, my child, remember that you received what was good in this life during your lifetime, while as Lazarus likewise received what was bad or leftover or nothing. But now he is comforted here, whereas you are tormented. Moreover, between us and you is a great chasm established to prevent anyone from crossing who might wish to go from our side to yours or from your side to ours. So then the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he, meaning Lazarus, the poor man, may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. And he said, Oh no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And then Abraham says, If they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. Now, remember this is a parable. This is a story. So what is the point of the story? Hmm? Anyone? Well, all right. Let's take it a little bit at a time. The whole idea is Abraham represents God the Father in heaven. All right, And the rich man, because of his neglect of the poor, went to hell. And Jesus is then saying, as part of the parable, that unless you listen to the teachings 
of Moses and the prophets and obey them while you're still on earth. You are going to go to hell. If you neglect not only the poor, but all of the things that are called for by the Mosaic law. So then he talks about the last item. And that last item, of course, is in reference to himself. If they won't listen to Moses and to the prophets, remember it was also Moses and the prophet Elijah that appeared with Christ and on the feast of the, I mean, on the transfiguration, the story of the transfiguration. And of course, Moses represents the Mosaic law. He is the most influential person within that. And the prophets were represented in the transfiguration scene by the prophet Elijah, the first of the historical prophets. So in here, Jesus is saying, if you don't listen to Moses and Elijah, you're not going to listen to anyone, even if that person rose from the dead. So he's referring to himself. It's another indication in Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, journey towards the end of his mission. And it is sort of a two-way type of thing here. He's really giving all the disciples a teaching about the value of preparing for your life, taking care of your life, and taking advantage of the graces that God gives you before you reach that point of death. Because once you're in, on your deathbed, there's not much more that you can do. And so the time to take advantage and the time to look towards heaven and your future is now here on earth. Yes, William? Grace is an individual thing. It is not something that everybody is swimming in. Uh, pardon the you know, example. But grace is something that each person is given at the time that they are facing a problem. Whether it's a simple problem or not. Whether it's a temptation uh, you know, to eat a candy bar when you know it's too fattening for you versus giving food to the poor. You know, it's something that is individually given. It, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit, which, as we have often said, is an ongoing process. Process of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing process and will be ongoing from the time of Christ's resurrection and the first Pentecost Sunday until the end of time? Yes. The answer is yes. But don't count on it. Okay? In the example that you are giving of the, what we call the good thief, 
he asks for forgiveness. That's the primary point. And he had faith. That's also required. And he would have been, had he had the ability to do something, make restitution. And those are the three things that assured him of being in paradise with Christ. But the point is that he was given the grace and used it. But the thing is, don't count on grace being there and, you know, you being a a hellion on wheels until your deathbed, expecting grace to be there. And, oh, I'll make use of it. To give you a real example, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, 4th century, great emperor, would not be baptized into the Catholic Church until his deathbed because he was told that baptism erases all previous sins, if any. And he's right. However, supposing he died in his sleep the night before. All right, well, to make it short, and we have to stop for this from here. If the person is sincere, yes. If he's just using it to get by on, no. But we cannot be the total judge, all right? So it has to be sincere uh, repentance. And that's all that is really required. Sincere repentance. But he probably will he will probably be in purgatory for here until eternity. Dean? The three chapters here are dealing with the parable and this throws in the short thing about savings about the law and the boy. Kind of like Yes, I I saw that in there, and it's. Let's go to that quickly. We got five minutes. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and the one who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Uh, I don't. And to answer Jean's question, frankly, I just don't know why that was stuck in there. Um, it's really out of place, totally out of place. But let me give you, uh, because so many people um, have that same kind of question. Why does the Catholic Church not permit divorce? Now, we all know some exceptions that are questionable. Forget that for the time being. Within the Catholic Church, if a couple comes in and they have the right to marry, first of all, very important, a right to marry. They are of proper age. In other words, they're not little kids or something, uh, or immature, or mentally imbalanced of some kind. And they wish to be married, and they go through the process. Let's hurry it up a little. The wedding ceremony consists of the husband, the man and the woman. You know, not Adam and Steve, but Adam and Eve. <clears throat> Making a commitment before God 
to live together as husband and wife forever. And the priest blesses that commitment. The priest does not marry the couple. They marry each other. Okay? So they make a commitment that is life-binding before God. If that is the case, and it is a valid commitment, the church cannot nullify that commitment. It is made between the couple and God. The church has nothing to do with it. And so the church cannot accept or honor a request for a divorce from a couple who has a valid marriage. Now, if for some reason there is an impediment to that commitment, and they didn't have, one or the other did not have full authority or right or whatever to make that commitment, then the commitment can be declared invalid. And the marriage, therefore, nullified. That doesn't make the children illegitimate, please. That subject comes up all the time. But do you get the point? It's a valid commitment if made by two people under the right circumstances. It is made between the couple and God. The church cannot intervene. Period. End of subject. And that is why divorce is not permitted in the Catholic Church. Yes, Betty? Yes. Yes. The Mosaic Law really was done away with as far as a requirement for all committed Christians. And that is brought out in Paul's letter to the Galatians and into in the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, that the resurrection of, of Christ, the, yeah, the resurrection of Christ and the uh, descent of the Holy Spirit upon all of the apostles and descendants actually nullified the requirement of the Mosaic Law for all Christians. And of course, when you get into the Acts of the Apostles, that created a lot of dissension, and that is what began the persecution of the Christians by the Jews first, and then by the Romans. No, not really, because they realized that the Mosaic Law and was uh, was too difficult, far beyond anyone's capability of keeping all of the laws, and therefore. Jesus changed a lot of them. One of them is the Sabbath itself. The whole understanding of the Sabbath. Yes, sir. Going back to what I asked you before in the session. Yes. He says, you're saying he did away with the whole Jewish law, but then he also says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the smallest part of the law to be changed. Yes. Uh, you have a a quandary there, and because it's 9 o'clock, I'm going to get out of here <laughs> so I don't have to answer that. <laughs> no. Let, let, me, let me give you a better answer next week, if you don't mind. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, any other questions that I can't, I mean, that I, you want me to answer? <laughs>